Well, we're a church operating on a budget, and so I'm about to do a one-man skit for you. Get excited. It's actually a YouTube video. If we had a cool screen, we could pay for the rights to show the YouTube video as well. But does anybody know? Maybe this will help if you already know the video. Uh, the, it's called, It's Not About the Nail. Is this familiar to anybody? Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm your first exposure to it, so go look it up, and there's a better version online of this uh, video. I swear this has a point, though. Uh, but this... This video starts off with uh, a lady, and I know this is so sad and small, but still gives you the point. There's a lady, and basically the camera's on her, on her face, and you can just see like this part of her face, and she's talking to uh, a guy who's not in the camera at this point. And so, you know, if, I, if my voice wasn't all raspy, maybe I could do a girl voice and a guy voice, but I'm just going to have to kind of move back and forth. This is going to be exciting. Come on. Uh, and so here's the girl. It's just... There's all this pressure, you know, and sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless and I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. And then the camera angle changes and then here, and so basically she turns and then you see this picture. You see what's on her forehead. There's literally a nail coming out of her forehead. And so she's talking about this pain she feels, I know, this is so sad. I can pass it around if you want. There's like this nail. So imagine, you know, I was talking and you can just see this part. And then I turn and now you can see a profile of this nail coming out of my head. And so the guy says, yeah, well, you do have a, oh, sorry, I'm just over here. Well, you do have a, a nail in your head. It's not about the nail. Are you sure? Because I mean, I bet we got that out of there. Uh, stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing you always do this. You always try to fix things. When I, what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that's what you need. I think what you need is get that nail out. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. Oh, sorry. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is, and I'm not sleeping for all at night. All my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Then they move in to kiss one another, and the nail gets bonked, and she goes, oh, and he says, oh, come on, if you would just, don't. Okay. We're on a budget, so go look it up on YouTube, and you can see a better version of that. Yeah, I know, you, you didn't come here for theater. Uh, hope, hopefully you didn't anyway, but this was, this was, uh, video came out 10 years ago, uh, and it has 24 million views, and it just kind of resonates with what a lot of us might experience in our relationships, and it shows this desire that we have to be known, to be seen, to be heard, to be understood, and we want the other person to really get what it's like to be us, to just get us, and oftentimes, though, when we're listening to somebody, we can jump to fixing it. I know this is very comical where it's like, you know, that nail would really fix it if you got that out of your head. But often we can jump to fixing it because it's like, well, you don't want to feel that way, right? And so here's the way you can stop feeling that way is I'm going to fix this situation for you. And actually what happens is listening really well fixes how we're feeling oftentimes because we don't feel alone anymore, that this person gets us. It's until somebody really gets what it's like to be us, really sees what this situation is and it's only then that we start feeling not alone in it, and then we might be able to open up that they would help us with the 
practical solution. And we have a lot of unhealthy ways we try to feel known. Uh, we'll use social media, we could use it you know, to rant, and we can often put ourselves out on social media hoping, you know, am I going to get the comments I want here? Am I going to get the likes I want here so that I can kind of feel better about myself? Um, we often will vent and complain about people or about situations. We might actually do it endlessly, just like every person we talk to, we just bring it up and vent about this situation. Uh, we might use gossip of a way to kind of vent and complain and like, hey, I'm talking about this person. And often those ways we do them, but they never are quite enough. It's like we, social media is not a healthy way to get to feel known and understood. And it's like we just need more and more and more of it. It never really fills up that desire uh, to be known. And venting, you know, we would just vent and vent and vent and vent and vent. And we never, we feel like if I just get it out, like then I'll have it out. But we, it doesn't work fully to get us to feel known and seen and understood. And this series we're beginning is called Now in Flesh Appearing, which is a quote from uh, O Come All Ye yeah, Faithful, the Christmas song. Yeah, I guess we thank you. <laughs> thank you for confirming that. Uh, and we're going to take six weeks during this Christmas season leading up to Christmas Eve. And the soundtrack that we really hear this, the Christmas season includes many songs, many words, talking about God himself taking on flesh as a human person in uh, the person of Jesus, born to Jewish parents 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. And it's for this reason that Jesus is often called Emmanuel, because it's God taking on flesh, and the word Emmanuel means God with us. And so these songs singing about veiled in flesh the Godhead see, or now in flesh appearing, it's like God is now appearing in the flesh. But we need to ask, well, but which God is with us? And what is this God like who is with us? Because God with us could mean good news or bad news, depending on which God it is and what that God is like. And, you know, telling, hearing Aunt Beatrice is staying with us for a week might not be good, you know. So saying God's coming to stay with us for a week could be good or could be bad. And so well, in terms of which God, the claim that uh, the writers of this book, you know, the, the last quarter of it is called the New Testament, and they're all writing about Jesus. And the claim that the New Testament writers make is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament come in the flesh. So the first, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of it. So that's the claim they make, that the God who is with us in Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. That's the God who has appeared, appeared in the flesh. Okay, that's which God, but what is he like? What is this God like? And that's what we're going to be spending our time doing. We just finished this series in Exodus, and a really Two key verses in the book of Exodus were Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And so, you know, we did a very brief overview when we went through that. But now we're really going to go back and dig into Exodus chapter 34, 6, and 7. It's on page, if you're using the Black Bibles, um, it's on page uh, 74. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the back there. Uh, and it, well, if you don't own one, you can take that with you. Or if you just need a Bible today, you can grab that one. But it's check page 74. Exodus chapter 34, 6, and 7. And so we're just going to dig deep in these. There's five attributes God lists here. And this is the first time in the Bible he's, God's been revealing himself, what he's like. But this is the first time that God himself declares what he's like. And as he's talking to the people of Israel, it's like these five attributes are what uh, describe him. And they're really beautiful. And you could think of these as the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. And maybe you've heard John... Maybe you've heard those words, John 3.16, but you don't quite know the verse. But still, John 3.16, very famous verse. 
uh, in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And you could think of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 like the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. It's quoted and repeated many times. Uh, one Bible scholar uh, counted up at least 27 times. It's quoted fully or in part. And so it's the m most quoted verse in the Old Testament. And so we're going to spend six weeks on these five attributes. I know i married to a math teacher. I know, but wait, five attributes? Wouldn't that be five weeks? But there'll be one for kind of a little description that is at the end of uh, those words there. So we're going to do five weeks on the attributes and then one week um, on God talking about forgiving and not clearing the guilty. And so these f weeks are about the words God used to describe himself, that Jesus displayed in the flesh. And so I first want to start off with, with why does God say these words about himself? What's like the situation going on that God feels the need to describe himself in this way. And if we just back up in the story, um, what happens right before these words is the way it's described is that Israel, the nation of Israel that God has taken out of Egypt, this is the book of Exodus, about the Exodus out of Egypt, freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And he says, I'm going to take you to be mine. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to worship me and be in relationship with me. And then they get committed in this relationship at Mount Sinai. They have like this marriage ceremony where God says this is who I am, this is what I have done for you and what I commit to you. And he says, I want, this is what I want from you. This is what I want you to commit to me. And it's the Ten Commandments. Is that's the summary of what God wants to, them to commit to him. And basically, that has happened. They've said, we're going to do this, we're going to commit to you. Uh, but then, just a little while later, like literally like a month later, a little over a month, uh, we're told that they commit a great sin. And it's a sin against God by breaking the covenant they just said that they would have with God. Like, yeah, God, we're going to have only one God. It's going to be only you. We're going to be faithful to you, totally committed to you. And yeah, we're not going to do any of that stuff the other nations do, making little statues of you, not making idols. We're not going to do that. We're going to honor you. We're going to love you. We're going to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes, God, we're going to do that. And literally like 40 days later, can you imagine like getting married and then 40 days later, one of the people, you know, goes and commits adultery with the other person in the relationship. That's basically what they do, is that they cheat on God in this situation. And what happens is they make an idol, um, which is breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. Don't have any other gods before me, and don't make any images, either of me or any other gods, to worship. And 40 days into the relationship, they break the first two commandments, they make this little, this cow, and then they're all worshiping it. And then God says, Moses, because Moses is the one God's communicating through, he's like, Moses, they're down there already breaking the covenant. They're already breaking their commitments. And then Moses describes this as a great sin. And what we're shown is that they deserve destruction and separation from God. And so the words that God speaks in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are a response to how badly they have been broken their commitment to God. And so that's Israel's problem. But Israel's problem is a human problem. Because if we went back even further in the Old Testament, back to the first three chapters of the Bible, book of Genesis, God creates the world, he forms it, and then he fills it. And then in chapter 3, it's basically the same situation. God makes Adam and Eve, and he says, you're going to be my representatives in this world. And here's what that looks like, is that you are trusting in me, that you're loving me above else, that you're not defining what's good and what's bad on your own terms, that you're not living life, you know, doing life on your own terms. You're obeying me. But what happens is Adam and Eve very quickly disobey. In Genesis 3, 
what happens is there's this enemy of gods that comes in the form of a serpent and, ba- and does uh, a, a series of things. First deceives them, and then they begin to doubt God, and then they begin to desire what they ought not desire, and then they disobey God doing the thing that they are not supposed to do. And basically the deception, the lie they believe is that God isn't that good and sin isn't that bad. And they put themselves on the throne by defining good and bad on their own, doing life on their own terms, playing God. And then if we zoomed all the way forward to the New Testament as well, in Romans chapter 1, which is a letter written by an early Christian to the church in Rome, uh, helping uh, helping them grow in their faith. And how he describes the human problem is that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And instead of uh, worshiping God, we've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. And you might think, okay, but we don't have this problem like they had back then. Like they made a little boat. None of us are have a little golden cow that is like what Israel made. None of us have a golden cow, I'm assuming, in our houses that you're sitting down and worshiping every day. Uh, but Jesus and the whole Bible makes it very clear. You don't have to have a little golden object to have something, a false god that you're worshiping because we worship money, we worship our work, we worship our friends or kids or spouses, and we take them and we put them in a place that only God deserves, that our well-being and our happiness is contingent upon those things instead of upon God. And so if we went through all this, you know, Israel's problem is a human problem, and the root of the human problem is deception, lies about God. And so if lies about God led us away from God, the essential lie being God isn't that good, if that lie led us away from God, then truths about God lead us back to God. And God has said in the book of Exodus over and over again, his big goal is I'm going to make myself known to the people of Israel, that now they're going to know the truth about me. They're going to know what I'm really like. I'm going to reveal myself and make myself known to them. And this isn't just about knowing God intellectually, but actually knowing God experientially. Not knowing God as a concept, but actually knowing Him in our daily experience. Because for Israel, these words that we are going to read in just a moment are not theoretical. They are spoken by God into a very specific situation in which they need to hear these words, in which they need to believe them and experience God to be this way. And so I just want to give this question out to you. Is how does God respond to your pain? How does God respond to your pain? And maybe you would say, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, God's, God's nice. And so when I get hurt, like he responds kindly to my pain. But what if it is pain from a mess of your own making? What if it is pain because of your own sin, because you turned away from God and did something you weren't supposed to do, and now you're in pain. How does God respond to you and your pain, whether you're suffering uh, because of just something that happened or whether you're suffering because of your own sin, turning from God? And so let's go to these words that show us a God who is compassionate. Exodus 34, 6-7. Let me read these words that he spoke to Moses and the people of Israel. Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In our, our sixth week, we're going to do the five attributes, and our sixth week is going to be on verse 7, what all of that means in verse 7. And so the first attribute God lists is compassion, or other translations might say mercy. Um, and I think what I read was, it said mercy. Yeah, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful. And they're very similar words. It really is about how God feels towards his people. It's an emotional word. It's, a, it's God's dis- disposition. He has a heartfelt response to our pain. He's moved by our pain. And we get this picture of God as emotionally invested and responsive to his people, especially in response to the cries of his people. And actually, the root word for this word for compassion is the word for womb. That's really showing us that there's this very tender, uh, motherly character to God. I mean, compassion is also a fatherly characteristic back in, or up in uh, Psalm 103, also quoting this passage. One of the famous passages that quotes this one in the Old Testament says, as a, as a father shows compassion on his children, so God shows compassion on us. So both fathers and mothers can be compassionate, but this Tying back, and I mean, both male and female are made in the image of God, so it makes sense that God would also be embodying characteristics that often are strong in moms. Um, but what we're told is that, you know, I was like, well, why mom? Let me just give you a little, se- tell you a little secret. Because I sleep through a lot of my kids' cries. I don't know if you know that, but sometimes I'll wake up and, like, Ezra will be in our bed, and I'll be like, oh, hey, Ezra and Katie, like, you slept through all that? And be like, yeah. So she just, like, wake me up, like, one of the kids is crying, it's your turn, huh? And I'm always like, so why moms? Moms have this like little internal sense of like, kids crying, you know, a spidey sense pops up. And internally, God feels for us. Ex- and externally, he moves towards his people to do something about it. He sees, he feels, and he does. And one of these examples was earlier in Exodus. Let me just read these words from chapter 2. It's where everything got started. 2.23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. And so there, God responds to their cries. And of course, that makes sense, right? What parent doesn't respond with compassion to the pain of their kids? If they've fell off their bike, or been bullied at school, or lost their favorite toy. But what if, as I asked before, what if the kid caused their own pain? What if their pain is a consequence of their own bad choices, that they're clearly told not to do this thing, and they did it anyway, and now they're in pain? They're in a mess of their own making. Should we have compassion then? And what about God? Does God have compassion on us? Does he have compassion when our pain is the result of our own bad choices, disobedience, and not listening? And here God is saying that he is compassionate in relation to his sinful, rebellious, rebellious, unfaithful people. Remember the context of why God is saying this, that they've created a mess of their own making. And so it's even when they've caused their own pain, God responds with compassion to their cry when they cry out to him. And just this Thursday, if you were at our house um, for a gospel community gathering, um, I had to bring Hudson upstairs kind of early. He wasn't listening to what was 
what I was, we were telling him to do, respecting people's kind of like boundaries. He really loves to sniff people's food. Kind of a problem, you know. And, not, and so it's like, buddy, you're not listening. So I had to take him upstairs. And he was crying when I took him upstairs. And so his crying was a result of his own bad choices. But in that moment, I comforted him. I had compassion for him, saying, I know this really stinks. You really wanted to be down there. And I held him and comforted him, even though it was his own, his own issue that he caused. And, but we might say, well, isn't it kind of a problem that God has, like, emotions like us? Wouldn't you kind of expect God needs to be, like, steel, no emotions, unchanging. You just always look at him. It's always the same face. It's always, like, I don't know which emo emoji it would be. It's always the same emoji that God has. It's like he doesn't change. But because if God is emotional, uh, isn't that kind of bad? We kind of use that word. Don't be so emotional. Isn't it bad for God to be emotional? Could he be in a bad mood? Do we have to try to catch him in a good mood? You know, maybe you've had situations, teachers or parents or caregivers, where it's like, okay, they're in a bad mood today and not going to ask to go to my friend's house. They're in a bad mood today not going to ask about that homework. Like, catch them in a good mood. We have to catch God in a good mood. And there's these two words you can put together, super nerdy words. It's God is both impassable and impassioned. You don't have to remember that if you don't want to. But impassable means that there can... No, nothing from the outside can create an emotional response in God that he didn't want to have. No one can make God angry. No one can break God's heart. He cannot be controlled from the outside. One of the big Bible words we often use is that God is sovereign, meaning he's in control, he's in charge of everything, all of human history. And God is also sovereign, in control, and in charge of his own emotional life internally. And so no one can make God angry. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't feel things. Because God is impassable, meaning from the outside, no one can put something into him. But he is also impassioned. Is that God is vibrant and alive with emotion, especially in connection with his people, with his kids. And God, you can think of it this way, is that God um, is perfectly emotional, perfectly joyful, perfectly angry, perfectly sad, and in control of his emotions, that God always has the perfect emotion for, appropriate for the situation to which he is responding to. And there's really two main actions tied to compassion in the Old Testament. One is forgiveness, and one is rescue or deliverance. And often they come together, and I'm just going to give you a couple examples quickly, quoting uh, Exodus 34, 6-7. One example is just God's compassion for Israel later in the history, about a thousand years later, from the events of Exodus, there's a man named Nehemiah praying. If you want to look it up, you can. We're going to look at Nehemiah. I'm just going to read it quickly. It's in Nehemiah 9, 16 uh, through 21. And it's on page 405 if you're using one of the black Bibles. And basically, Nehemiah 9, 16 through 21 is this guy praying, but a thousand years later, looking back on Israel's history. And this is this prayer in Nehemiah 9, 16 through 21. But they, this was referring to the Exodus generation, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Well, look at this. But you are a God ready to forgive. These words sound familiar. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, referring to this story that we're in, and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies, 
You, in your great mercies, or remember, compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, did not depart from them by day, or the pillar of fire by night. And then just going, zooming forward a little bit more, he, uh, in verses 26 and 27, starts talking about a different period in, in Israel's history where it comes shortly after the Exodus, uh, where they keep getting kind of conquered by these other powers. They're supposed to go into the land of Canaan, and they're supposed to be able to uh, push the Canaanites out um, while trusting in God, but they don't trust in God, so they keep repeating this. They're like, they trust in God, and God delivers them, and then they turn away from God, and then other nations conquer them, and then they cry out to God, and there's this cycle. And he uh, records it in verses 26 and 27. Nevertheless, they are disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies in a, in a situation, a mess of their own making. And then if we go into the Psalms, page 474, Psalm 51, 1 through 7, that this is uh, an individual crying out to God that a man named David, uh, David was the greatest king of Israel. He, God called him a man after his own heart, which might be surprising if you consider what he did because uh, he committed adultery, uh, basically was you know the king and was like, I want that woman, bring her to me, brings her to you. Some people say he also raped her in that moment. Um, it's not totally clear, but that maybe happened as well. And then she gets pregnant, and so he's like, well, this is a problem. She's married. And I need to cover this up somehow. So she has this, he has this plan to get her husband killed in battle. And he succeeds in it, murders her husband, and gets other soldiers killed in the process. And so he's just throwing other people's lives away. All adultery, cover-up, murder, lying. And at one point, uh, one of the prophets of Israel, who are basically people who come to call out God's people to say, you're not living in alignment with you, what you've committed to him. A prophet comes to him and convinces him, look at this bad thing you've done. And this Psalm 51 is his prayer to God uh, after all of this goes down. And so verse 1, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. And look at these words. We saw them in Exodus. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so David goes to God, holding on to these words we hear in Exodus 34, like, I have done a terrible thing, a broken multiple you know, I don't know, half the Ten Commandments in this one thing he's doing. He goes to God, holding on to these characteristics, please forgive me. And isn't that audacious to say, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Like, no, David, you should be held accountable for this. You did terrible things. And yet the promise that God gives is, I will forgive even the worst things and make you white as snow. But God's compassion is not just for Israel or just for David, but God's compassion is for the world. Is that Israel needed these words. And the fact that they're repeated so many times 
shows how precious they were to the people of Israel. That no matter how bad they had blown it, no matter how many times they had failed to uphold their end of the relationship, when they turned away, when they rebelled, disobeyed, were unfaithful, slept around on God, when they didn't listen, when they do what he said not to do, and when they don't do what he said to do, sitting in the terrible pain of their own mess they made, this is the kind of God he is, the kind of God that they held on to. Like, this is what he is like, even when we mess up so badly. And so can you relate to any of that that I was reading? Over and over again, do what God said not to do. Over and over again, don't do what he said to do. So Israel needed these words. We need these words. Israel's problem is a human problem. And because it's a human problem, it's a world problem. Is that our world is sitting in a mess that we've made. And God's response, John 3.16, is actually where we're going to end all this. It felt appropriate that the end of, on Christmas Eve, John 3.16 is going to be our passage because we're spending these six weeks in the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And so God's response to this mess we've made, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not die, but have eternal life. He so loved the world, God's heart of compassion for the world, that he could not leave us in the mess that we've made ourselves. He cares about us so much that he was willing to suffer pain on our behalf to free us from the pain that we've caused to ourselves. I said something along these lines the last week or two, that the glory of God is seen in how good he is to people who don't deserve it. That all of these attributes in Exodus 34, 6-7, that God says, I'm declaring my goodness. And Moses had asked to see his glory, and God says, I'll show you my goodness, as, which is the outward shining of, or, uh, of, you know, his glory is the outward shining of his goodness. And so the glory of God is seen in how good he is to people who don't deserve it. And God let Moses see the glory of his goodness while proclaiming these words of what he's like. And then Jesus is the word of what God is like. He is the goodness of God's compassion for us in the flesh. There's a book I've mentioned before. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's written maybe 200-ish years ago or something like that. Um, and it's a guy going through uh, all the time, all the emotions that are recorded in the four Gospels that Jesus experienced. And the one that Jesus most frequently has is compassion. That when he sees a leper, he felt compassion and moved towards the leper to heal him. When he sees a widow whose only son had died, he feels compassion and moves towards her to relieve her of her pain. When he sees this crowd of people gathering around him, he sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them and he shepherded them through teaching them about God and his kingdom. And so what we see is that Jesus sees, he's moved, and then he does, just like we saw God in Exodus 2. God saw, he heard, he knew, and then he moves to do something about it. In this great book, if you have, a, if you have trouble seeing God in this way, this would be the book I'd recommend. I've recommended it so many times. Some of you are like, oh my word, get off gentle and lowly. But it is such a great book, and the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Not just people suffering, but people who have sinned big time. And the, the way that, uh, here's a quote from this book. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels, that's the four accounts of Jesus' life in the, in the Bible, is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness, meaning the sinfulness, the brokenness of the world, all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. 
And that's been so encouraging to me because I think sometimes we think, I, I'm just too dirty. You know, if we kind of put it into physical words, I'm too dirty, I just stink, I'm a mess, and I've got to get this mess cleaned up. I've got to get myself nice and pretty and clean if I'm ever going to come before God again. What we're told in that is that Jesus never thinks that, is that he moves towards us, that his heart goes out to us when we're sitting in a mess of our own making, that he moves towards us, that he's not like, that's disgusting, get yourself cleaned up, that he moves into the disgusting mess on our behalf to do something for us. Jesus moves toward the hurting and broken. So is that you today? Are you feeling hurt? feeling broken? And you might say, I don't deserve it. And the reality is that you don't. And God knows that. And Jesus taught very clearly that compassion isn't giving to the deserving, but it's a God-like response to someone in need. Look at Luke 6 when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. If you're going to be merciful or compassionate, as your Heavenly Father is compassionate, that means you show mercy and compassion to people who can't pay you back, regardless of any return you get. That's the kind of compassion God has. Or the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus says, it's not about whether you think this person deserves to be helped, but it's whether they're in need and they need help. And that's how God moves towards us. Jesus is drawn towards sinners and sufferers like a bee to a flower. I just want to give you one last passage and then we'll be concluding. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I thought I had marked it, but I'll find it. This is on page 1003 if you're using one of the black Bibles. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. This is describing Jesus as our high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so what pain do you have today? Jesus invites you, come to me, bring it to me, bring that pain to me, whether you made it yourself or whether it just happened to you because this world is messed up. And maybe you've never come to Jesus. And really coming to Jesus is just saying yes to him. Yes, I will let you love me in the way you want to love me. And so coming to him, if it's you're coming to him with pain from sin, we might say, I know I've messed up. I made this mess. I brought this upon myself but you say to bring it to you, and so I'm bringing it to you. Or maybe you just have pain from suffering, and you're not sure, well, I don't know if this was my fault or not, or you're for sure it's not your fault, it just happened. You come to him and say, I'm hurting, I feel alone, but I don't want to be alone in this anymore. I want you with me in it. We're saying yes to his love for us. Colossians 3.12 tells us to put on compassionate hearts, Toward one another. And that's what we're going to do the last 10 minutes of the service. Usually we do the, take the Lord's Supper or communion. The last 10 minutes of the service we're reserving to have a time where either you can just kind of pray by yourself or if you would like to be prayed for, we're going to have a, a few people up here that you can be prayed for. What we're doing is trying to put on these compassionate hearts towards one another. And you can see the little directions on the bottom of your bulletin. These are going to be 
uh, on the backhand side. That's how we're going to do it. And the reality is, why we want to do this is that God's people are God's delivery system for his care. That most often the way God brings his care to you is that he uses his people as the delivery system. And as we saw last week, that the church, the people of God, are the temple where people can come to meet him and experience his presence. So I'm just going to give you one minute of silence before I pray, close this sermon. I'm going to give you one minute of silence to just bring to God what pain do you have today? What pain do you have? I'm going to give you a minute of silence and then I'll pray for us. Our merciful, compassionate Father, you know our pain before we ever bring it to you. You see it, you know it, you hear us. God, we want to bring our cries before you silently or out loud. We want to bring our cries to you because we trust that you respond to your cries <coughs> like a compassionate, merciful parent. Lord, we want to be a people of compassion for each other, for this broken world. Lord, would you give us a taste of your compassion today as we continue to sing, as we pray for each other. In your son's name we pray. Amen.